All right, all right, all right, all right. Good to see everybody. Hey, that, uh, that song just says so well, I think, what we've been learning in this series, which is that um, God's heart beats um, not to keep people locked out or away from His love or to marginalize people, but God's heart beats for freedom, to set people free. Jesus said, it is for freedom that I have come to set you free. And so we've been kind of tapping into that in this series, trying to um, explore what the heart of God beats for. And what we've been learning is the heart of God beats for is passionate about marginalized people. Um, physically marginalized people, right? Poor, orphans, widows, people with special needs, but also spiritually marginalized people, people who feel like, and maybe in reality are, far off from God. But those of us who've been in this place before, where we've, we've even thought, um, some of us, that's us tonight, we're going, listen, I've done so many bad things that even if there is a God, um, if there was a God, he would be interested not in a relationship with me, but what he would probably be interested in would be to push me away, to push me aside, and to condemn me or punish me, right? So for the past few weeks, we've been looking at people who get marginalized for a whole bunch of different reasons. Maybe they look different or act different. Or here's one we touched on, people who make us uncomfortable because their obvious weakness is a reflection of our less obvious weakness, and we don't like to be exposed to that, do we? Um, Last week, we looked at people who get marginalized because people don't like their behavior, right? We met a woman who was a quote-unquote sinner, and as Jim taught us last week, that probably meant she was a hooker, and she represents kind of the proverbial they, people who make us uncomfortable because of their lifestyle or their choices or the things that they do, and you could apply that in a whole bunch of different ways. And all along the way, it's been really easy um, with what we've been looking at in the Bible to contrast the marginalized, the spiritually poor, with the spiritually arrogant, the self-proclaimed insiders, right? And here's the thing. Jim and I have not had to like scrape and reach and scrounge for material on this. I mean, the Bible is full of, and especially Jesus, has all kinds of content specifically criticizing religious, arrogant people who consider themselves the in crowd while pushing other people out. I mean, it's just all over the place in there. See, here's the thing. Around here, we're trying really, really hard to simply follow Jesus as opposed to following the prevailing winds of Christian subculture, which inevitably lead in the wrong direction. Um, Craig Blomberg, who's a, a professor down at Denver Seminary, says it this way. Jesus fraternizing with disreputable people remains a scandal in the predominantly middle-class suburban Western church. Many of us, like the Pharisees, at best ignore the outcasts of our society and at worst continue to discriminate against them. And so that's what we're trying to avoid by following Jesus. So today that pattern, that contrast is going to continue. Spiritually poor, spiritually arrogant. And it's going to get even more personal today. I'll be really honest with you. I didn't even enjoy preparing for this message this week. Some weeks I do, some weeks I don't. But this one today and this weekend is really deeply convicting in my own heart, my own life. So it's going to be tough, I think, probably for a lot of us. Here's what I mean. You ever had or do you have someone in your life that you just don't like? Let's just be honest, okay? All right, you just just don't like them. And maybe you don't know exactly why you don't like them. Or maybe you're going, oh, I can't even count all the reasons why I don't like them. I could give you a laundry list of why I don't like them. But at the end of the day, you just know one thing. I don't like him. I don't like her. Now, whoever you are right there, I'm fine with you, okay? Um, Now, I know this might blow you away, okay? But even I, all right, as a pastor, have some people in my life that I just don't like. 
Now, some of you are going, because you know me pretty well, you're like, that is not a surprise, Scott, okay? Some of you, you just started coming here in the past few weeks, and you're going, is the pastor allowed to say that? I hope so, because it's true, all right? And we're all about honesty around here. And I think it would be accurate, I'd be accurate in saying, listen, you got people in your life you don't like too. I'm not the only one. Me too, right? See, years ago, um, I'll just make you think even less of pastors right now. Me and a couple other buddies who were pastors at lunch, we would often play this game called um, Signed Note from Jesus. Um, And the way it went was, if you had a signed note from Jesus saying, you can pick one person on the planet to punch in the face as hard as you can. (laughs) I told you, say, don't judge me, all right? (laughs) It's a fun game. You should try it. It's very therapeutic. It's very immature as well, all right? Maybe you can play it in your community groups this week. I'll put it in the discussion questions, all right? Sign note from Jesus. Write that down. Now, here's the thing, all right? Let's, let's start with the less personal stuff, and then it'll get a little tougher as we go. But you're like me. There are famous people out there that you've never met. You see them on TV and magazines and movies, and you've just decided, I don't like that person, all right? I just don't like them. You won't watch movies with that person or shows with that person, whatever that is. Um, I don't know who it is for you. I'll give you a few of mine. I don't know what kind of emotional response these people will elicit in you. I'll just tell you they're on my list, all right? First time I saw a movie with Steven Seagal, all right? I just went, I don't like that guy. He gets on my nerves, all right? He's on my list, okay? Um, Oprah, sorry, sorry. I'm just not a fan, not a fan. Thank you. All right, Uh, Paris Hilton, why is she famous? Can somebody explain that to me? Just because your parents are rich. There's lots of people, rich parents aren't famous. Um, Lady Gaga, all right? Seen her lately? I don't know why anyone would want to listen to her, much less watch her sing, all right? She just, she makes me feel like I need to go take a shower afterwards. I just don't feel right, okay? Um, Or athletes, um, athletes, and this is a really important one to me. People like Terrell Owens, all right? I'm not a fan of T.O., okay? Here's one that's deeply personal to me, and not many of you know who this is, but a guy named Christian Leitner. All right, um, because every time CBS plays a basketball game, they have to show the shot that that guy hit that kept my Kentucky Wildcats from going to the Final Four in 1992. Okay, 18 years ago, and I still pray at night that bad things will happen to him. All right, just being honest. All right, Kobe Bryant. All right, listen, we didn't even need Carmelo last night to beat him. All right, all we needed was. All we needed was Chauncey. All right, here's, here's one that maybe elicited a little response. Jay Cutler. Anybody? Anybody? He's just a whiny kid, man. He's just whiny. All right. Now, now that I'm going to hell, um, little, let's get a little more personal. All right. What about people you come into casual contact with? And I don't know what that looks like for you. It's people that you see, but you don't really know, but you see them fairly often. Like, like maybe someone at the gym or the bank or the airport. Like when I went to, um, back years ago in Kentucky, I used to go to Gold's Gym every day. There was this guy, I'd get on the treadmill and inevitably he would show up and I always prayed he wouldn't get on the treadmill in front of me because he wore a cotton gray singlet. You know what I'm talking about? Like it cuts off right here. You know, and it's gray cotton, so it sweats a lot, okay? And he would run right in front of me. And I just decided, I don't like you, all right? It's just a, just a bad moment, okay? So I don't know who it is for you. I don't know if it's people at the store, the bank, the airport, wherever that is. Or let's, let, let's really get down to it, okay? So there, there's people you work with, right? Now try not to look around to see if they're here. Try not to point at them. Don't say amen. You work with me. Shut up. (laughs) Man. All right. It's people you work with, people your spouse is friends with, right? People your friends 
is a friend with, but you don't like them, and let's get real brutally honest. There's people in our family, all right? Everyone's got a cousin Eddie, is the way I like to put it, or 12, okay? Um, people you find yourself just constantly trying to avoid. You're, you're expending an enormous amount of energy to keep them away from you or to stay away from them. And when they work their way back into your life, if you're anything like me, you get pretty angry. Am I the only one? I am. Okay, awesome. <laughs> very alone up here. Now, here's the thing. I've got good reasons for a lot of these. I mean, I I can build a case for exactly why I don't like certain people. Can't you? There have been things said, there have been things done that just simply aren't okay. Right? They're just not okay. And so we push them out. Here's the thing about you and me, okay? When we start to marginalize people or when we decide we don't like people, we can get junior high real fast. Right? Our, our tactics can get middle school really fast. So like a couple of years ago, I shared a story with those of you who are here then about how I got in this knockdown, drag out argument with my neighbors that still live next to me to this day. Right? Um, because they didn't like my dog barking and all kinds of different assorted things that I won't put you through again. But one of the things is, is since then, I, I mean, I maybe said hi twice. Every time I see these people, I just, I just get angry again. Now, you go middle school really fast when you don't like people. So when I'm walking my dog yesterday, yesterday, like getting ready to teach a sermon today. Okay. Yesterday, I'm walking my dog and in his side yard, he has a little uh, sign that says, if your dog poops, please scoop. All right. And my dog pooped and I did not scoop. All right. Just um, just confession. All right. Um, Because you'll go middle school really fast. You're just going, I don't like you. Ha ha ha. You know, I mean, it's just kind of the way kind of the way it works. Now, here's the thing we've been learning around here, okay? We learn it all the time. This is nothing new, right? This is not unique to us. This isn't like our generation or people who live in this part of Colorado. This is all people everywhere for as long as sin has been in the world. We've been marginalizing one another, right? So if you got your Bibles, go to the book of Luke, chapter 5. We've been in, in the book of Luke, if you haven't noticed, um, for the past several weeks, looking at all these different situations with Jesus. And we're going to look at another one today. Now, the story we're going to look at today is also in Matthew and in Mark. One of the things I love about the Bible is its consistency. So we're going to have three different people share about the same story and give us their own unique perspective and details, but they'll never contradict one another, which I think is just beautiful about the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to live in Luke tonight. It's also in your program. It'll be on the screens. Um, But I'm also going to kind of pepper in some details from the book of Matthew and the book of Mark as well, just because you bring it all together and it's just kind of this great picture, okay? So for starters, Mark tells us that as we jump into the story we're about to look at, that Jesus is walking beside a lake, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking around in the region of his hometown. So he's in his hometown by a lake. And here's what happens. Look at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Now, um, this guy Levi, there's a million things to unpack here. This guy Levi is also Matthew who wrote Matthew in the Bible. Okay, And what we, what we know is, is that people in Jesus' day often had two or three names. So Matthew or Levi, Levi is his Jewish name, which is reminiscent of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Matthew is his Aramaic name, which means gift from God. Okay, so this is a Jewish guy. All right, we'll refer to him as Matthew through the rest of the sermon. Okay, he's also a tax collector. Now, right there, you need to know what we're dealing with. We're dealing with one of the most hated people in Jesus's culture. 
And this is a Jewish guy working for the Roman government, which represents everything that the Jewish people hated. Tax collectors had a reputation for cheating people for their own profit, and they were protected by Rome. So you couldn't do anything to them. So at the tax booth, literally, you'd have a soldier or two standing behind the tax collector so no one could confront the tax collector. Tax collectors were literally considered scum of the earth. And they're almost always lumped in with prostitutes, like the woman we talked about last week. It's kind of as representative of everything that's most wrong with the world. You see, in many ways, they were actually more hated than the Roman soldiers and officials that occupied Israel. Because at least the Romans were loyal to their own people. Tax collectors were the ultimate traitors. So to say the phrase tax collector in Jesus' day would conjure up a huge amount of emotion. I mean, the best comparison I could give you to our day would be like the phrase child molester or terrorist. It's that type of emotion that would raise in people when you said that. And here's the thing. Tax collectors weren't just hated by the religious people of their day, like the Pharisees that we've been learning so much about, and we'll look at again here tonight. They were also hated by just the average Joe. Because tax collectors personally affected the lives of everyone because everyone had to pay taxes. So let's just say, if you were a fisherman, for example... Let's just pretend you work all night, right? You're out there fishing all night. You're in the Middle East. You fish at night because it's cooler at night and the fish bite at night. You, you work all night. You get this huge haul of fish. And as you haul it in in the morning, there's this guy in a booth who's taking note of how much you've brought in. And as soon as you go sell it at the market, he's going to come collecting. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90% of your profit. He's going to leave you with 10 to 20% to feed your kids with. So... So here's the thing. Several of Jesus' disciples that are already following him at this point are what? Fishermen. Right? And this guy, Matthew, is the guy who's been set up shop by the lake while he's been a tax collector. And so people like Peter and James and John, guys who were notorious for their temper, by the way, every day got up and went to work and walked past this guy. Every day when they brought in fish, whether it was a lot or a little, he would take 80 or 90% of their income. I want you to imagine working your tail off every day, only to have what you've worked so hard for taken away from you. And the guy who's taking it away from you is supposed to be one of you. He's supposed to be like your, your brother. He's supposed to be on your side. And as you get poorer and poorer, he gets richer and richer. Every day that you show up in the same tattered garment that you wore a year ago, he's wearing a brand new one that he bought yesterday and he's got new rings on his fingers because of the money he's taking from you. Can you imagine the animosity you would feel towards someone like that? See, I just bet many people actually wanted to kill Matthew. And if they got the opportunity in the right place at the right time, I bet some guys wouldn't even hesitate to take this guy out. And Jesus walks by with his blue-collar followers and fishermen and looks at the guy that they hate most in the world and says, follow me. So what do you think was going through their minds when that happened? And what do you think was going through their minds when not only does Jesus say, follow me, but Matthew, it says, leaves everything and follows. Leaves everything. I mean, leaves the money on the table, leaves the the protection of the Roman guards behind. How vulnerable is that? And not only that, he leaves his seat behind, which would have been filled before it was cold. Because it was a lucrative position. Lots of people willing to sell out for it. 
It's unbelievable. And I imagine as they walked, and then Matthew followed Jesus, I bet Matthew stuck close to Jesus, and there were a lot of conversations going on behind their back, don't you? Now look at what happens in verse 29. Then Levi, Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Great banquet um, literally translates big old party. All right, that's, that's what it means. And I want you to notice something here. This party is for Jesus. He's the guest of honor. So if you rewind a couple weeks when I taught about um, the story where Jesus was, was having dinner or having a party with the Pharisees, Jesus wasn't really the guest of honor at that. So where the religious people got it wrong, this tax collector gets it right. Now again, in this moment, I want you to imagine what it'd feel like to be Peter, James, John. In your mind, you're going, so now we're going to eat with this guy. Not only do I have to look at him every day, but now we're actually going to his house. That would have been really hard to deal with. Not only that, since Matthew has been so marginalized by both religious people and average Jewish people alike, the only people that accepted him were other people like him. The book of Matthew actually gives us another detail. It says, a large crowd of tax collectors and other sinners, in quotes, gathered at Matthew's house. So here's the thing. All manner of sinners showed up to this party. I mean, you can imagine. These are, these are the only people Matthew is friends with. They're probably hookers and robbers and thieves and everything else you can imagine. And here's my question. What kind of party do you think they threw? Quiet little soiree. No, they throw the only kind of party they know how to throw and it makes everyone uncomfortable except for Jesus. Pick it up in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples... Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, here they are again. We need to start getting some music for whenever the Pharisees enter the scene because they show up week after week. These religious guys, these experts. And remember a couple of weeks ago, um, the roles were reversed, right? Jesus was at a banquet with the Pharisees and all the sinners stood outside in the margins. This time it's the other way around. Jesus is inside with the sinners and all the religious guys are outside in the margins because they don't see, there's no way these Pharisees would ever venture into a place like that to hang out with people like that because they have yet to embrace the truth that Jim taught us a couple weeks ago, which is, we is people like that. And they don't get it. They don't see themselves as people like that. I want you to notice something else too. Who do they complain to? They don't complain to Jesus. Who do they complain to? To his disciples. See, I think that actually indicates several things. One is this. I think the religious guys are afraid to confront Jesus directly. The second is this. I think they sensed that maybe Jesus' followers weren't very happy about this either. And maybe they would have a sympathetic audience with guys like Peter and James and John. Here's another thing. It seems to me that the disciples would have to be in close proximity to the Pharisees in order for the Pharisees to talk to them. So here's my question. Are the disciples standing outside the party in the margins with the religious guys kicking dirt and pouting? I think they probably are, don't you? I want you to notice something else. The Pharisees' criticism is very specific. It's about eating and drinking. You see, one of the major tenets of Pharisees' teaching was simply this. You don't eat 
or drink with sinners. Because in Jesus' culture, eating and drinking with someone meant mutual acceptance. If I share a meal with you, it means you accept me and I accept you. And obviously, they would never accept people like that. And here's Jesus, who's supposed to be a teacher like them, and he's doing everything wrong. So what's the deal with this? And not only that, I can imagine the Pharisees kind of poking fun at the disciples, can't you? Just kind of laughing at them, going, hey, how's that working for you? I noticed your teacher picked the guy that you hate the most to be one of you. How's that going? Oh, isn't, isn't that guy in there, isn't he the one who's been kind of stealing food out of your kids' mouths for all these years? What do you think about your leader now? And it's in that moment that Jesus decides to speak up. Look at this, verse 31. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus does this again and again. They didn't speak to Jesus, did they? But it says Jesus answered them. Jesus can hear you. All right? It's a takeaway. See, I actually imagine the scene like this. So Pharisees and disciples are out there pouting. Jesus is reclined at the table, at the head of the table, laughing, drinking, feasting. There's loud music going on. It's festive. They're having fun. And in the middle of it, there's no way that he could have humanly heard what was going on out in the courtyard. But in the middle of it, he yells out from the table, laying on his side, Hey, hey, it's not the healthy you need a doctor. It's so sick. And he takes another bite. And in that moment, I imagine all eyes went to Jesus for a second. The record screeched to a halt. And then all the eyes went to the religious guys and the disciples standing in the margins. You, did you ever get in trouble in class for talking and you're talking with somebody and you don't realize to like, Five seconds after the teacher has called you out and everybody else has gotten quiet, you're still talking and then you're like, Oh, this is that moment for the Pharisees. They're getting called out in front of everyone. And Jesus does it by quoting a popular proverb of their day. This would have been the equivalent of quoting a popular song today. Something everyone's familiar with. Something that's playing on the radio repeatedly. When he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, this goes back to what Jim said last week. There are only two groups there. There's Jesus and there's everyone else. The only healthy person in the room or outside the room was Jesus. Everyone else was sick, spiritually sick, unable to do anything to connect themselves back to God, totally helpless, weak and hopeless apart from God. And Jesus says, listen, I came to call sick people. I came to call sinners to turn their hearts back to God. Now, here's the thing, okay? For a long time, I always kind of imagined it like this. Jesus going, hey, to the Pharisees, I didn't come to call you guys, you healthy guys, you're fine. I came to call sick people like this, sinners like this. You're righteous, they're they're not. You're healthy, they're sick. I came for them. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's not even remotely close to what Jesus is saying. This is really, really important. I want you to notice this, okay? Jesus never calls the Pharisees healthy or righteous. He never calls them healthy or righteous. They simply assume they are. Right? See, the Bible is clear from cover to cover. There is no one righteous. No, not one. See, the Pharisees are the worst kind of sick. They're sick and they don't know it. See, better to be sick and know it so you can seek treatment than to be sick and not know it. Right? 
In the book of Matthew, it adds one detail that Luke leaves out. Matthew 9.13, it tells us that Jesus, in the middle of quoting that proverb, he weaves this in, which is unbelievable. Look at this. He says to the Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, you have no idea what a huge insult that was to these guys. For him to say to these teachers the phrase, go and learn, was so demeaning. That phrase was only used from teachers to their most immature students who hadn't done their homework. And Jesus is saying it to these big shots. And not only that, he's done quoting Proverbs now, he's quoting the Bible. He's not quoting songs on the radio, he's quoting Hosea 6.6. Which all the religious experts in the room, or outside the room, would have had memorized. He's saying, listen, you guys have memorized it, but you have no idea what it actually means. Because you're so busy with all your religious exercise, you're forgetting about what my heart actually beats for. Ouch. Right? I mean, Jesus is aggressive with these guys. And in typical fashion, they totally miss the point. They want to continue to argue about religious stuff, so they change the subject. Look at this, verse 33. They said to him, now they're speaking to Jesus, John's disciples, John the Baptist, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, like us. But yours go on eating and drinking. Here's the thing. There was one day of the year that all the Jews were supposed to fast. They were required to fast, which means to abstain from eating food for a day so that you can focus on prayer. One day a year they were supposed to do it, called the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees, however, and actually John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin's disciples, who usually found themselves at odds in conflict with the Pharisees, don't on this point because the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Twice a week they would go without food for the purpose of prayer. Now, here's what I think. This is just my theory. I I can't prove it, but I, I think it's probably close to right, okay? I think the day that Jesus was partying with Matthew, I think that day just so happened to be one of the days that the Pharisees were fasting. And so the fasting Pharisees pass by the feasting Jesus and get all ticked off about it. I get mad when I'm hungry, don't you? See, Jesus now, in typical fashion, is going to give them a a metaphor and a parable. Some things to compare with. Pick it up in verse 34. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. In other words, this is party time, folks, because I'm actually here. Because you don't fast at a wedding, you you feast. Then he flips it and he alludes to his death. But he says, listen, there will come a day when my followers will fast. This is referring to his death. See, just a couple chapters later in Luke 7.32, Jesus is so fed up with the criticism that he's been getting. He's he's basically saying, listen, it doesn't matter what I do. You religious experts, you're going to criticize me. And he said this, he said, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. In other words, Jesus is going, I came singing and dancing and partying and drinking and you criticized me and wouldn't join in in that. My cousin John came doing the exact opposite, fasting and living in the wilderness, being very somber and you criticized him for that. We can't win for losing because you guys are missing the point. Now, pick it up in verse 36. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. He does. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. 
And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. See, what Jesus is saying, that sounds kind of convoluted, but it's very, very simple. He's saying this. I did not come to patch things up. Like, I did not come to kind of season your old paradigm with just a few new ideas and pithy sayings. No, I came with a whole new revolutionary promise, a whole new revolutionary system, a whole new revolutionary covenant. And if you try to fit me into your old paradigm, you're going to ruin both your paradigm and my teaching. Jesus is saying, don't try to box me up, squeeze me into your preconceived religious notions. It simply won't work. He's saying, I'm here bringing a whole new thing. And here's the thing about new things. At the end, he says, listen, most people prefer old wine over new, which is true. Old wine is typically better than new. What he's doing is he's comparing that to how we are as people. We have a tendency to latch on to the old and the comfortable at the expense of the new because we don't like change and we fear change. And Jesus is bringing change. And he's saying, no, 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 listen, I'm bringing a whole new thing, a whole new promise, a whole new way of living. So here's the question. What's that look like? What's this whole new way of living look like? How does it manifest itself? Well, I think it looks like saying to people who've done unacceptable things, I accept you. I I think it looks like those who've been pushed out being invited in. I think it looks like a level playing field where we stop playing this foolish game where we rank sins based on our feelings toward those sins and realize that Jesus is the only one who's healthy and the rest of us are sick. That, That your sin may be different from my sin, but in God's economy, it's not worse. Sin is sin. It all separates us from God. Yet God, as we've been learning, has invited you and me to his table to eat and drink with us. And he did that through Jesus and his son's death on the cross, right? So now it's our turn. And here's where it gets really, really personal. This is the part I really don't like, to be really honest with you. I kind of wanted to wrap up, sing a couple songs and go home. But here it is, okay? We're back where we started past few weeks, let's be really honest, the past few weeks around here, the application in regards to taking a dollar or two or however many and putting in that box, that's not been incredibly difficult for, for many of us, has it? That's not been really, really hard. That's been, that's been pretty easy. It's been a good thing. It's been a teachable thing. It's been something I've watched as parents have held their kids up and dropped a dollar in and explained exactly why we're doing it. I've got to teach my kids that. It's been a beautiful thing. It's been a significant thing. It's been rewarding to take those baby steps and see a huge difference made in the lives of people. Thousands of dollars spent on a family in Westminster. Hundreds of hours working on their house. Their house. Thousands of tears shed as they buried their son. All that. Thousands of dollars sent to help people in Haiti. Thousands spent and hundreds of volunteers and thousands of hours invested to throw a party for physically and mentally challenged. Thousands of dollars last week given so that we can build a roof for a bunch of marginalized girls. And what we've learned around here through all that is this is what Jim started with way back at the beginning of the series. When we bring a little bit to the table and put it all together... God can take that and do amazing things with the small things that we offer. And that's been awesome. But in regards to just dropping a dollar or two in the box out there, it's not been a huge sacrifice for most of us, right? Has anybody really gone without? I haven't because of that one or two dollars. Now, this goes back to this. We've said this several times. We don't do projects. We build relationships. And what we're talking about today are some relationships. And the application today, if we decide not to do it, will only be because, not because we don't have a dollar in our pocket, 
but because we simply say, no, not going to do that. And I get, can I be really honest? I'm really tempted to say that. I really, really am. I'm really tempted to look at this challenge and just say, nope. Because here's the thing, there is no dollar box this week. Jim talked about that last week a little bit because what we're looking at today is way more personal. This week, it's all about this. Who is it in my life that I've pushed to the margin? And who is it in your life that you've pushed to the margin and exclude? Who is it? That's what this is about this week. Now, let me give you a couple disclaimers, okay? I'm not talking about setting boundaries. It's not what I'm talking about. Boundaries are good. Boundaries are healthy and important. That's a whole other sermon for another day, okay? Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who I push out of my life simply because I don't like them. They get on my nerves. I don't approve of them or what they do. People I marginalize because of my own stuff, my own sin, my own arrogance, my own pride, my own selfishness. Let me give you another disclaimer. I don't think the takeaway today is going to be Go find the person you don't like the most, take them to lunch tomorrow, and become their best friend. That's not the takeaway. If it was, I'd tap out right now, okay? That's not what it is. In fact, I don't even think that would be biblical. I don't think it would be. Um, Being best friends is not the goal of this today. That's not the issue. Did you know that Jesus had friends that were closer to him than others? Do you know why? Because that's the only way that human relationships can function. Right? So he had hundreds, maybe thousands of followers while he walked around this earth. He had 12 that he was really close with, three he was super tight with, and one he called his best friend, John. So that's a good model. But that's not the issue. Who you invite closest in is not the issue. You should do that wisely and with discernment and carefully. Okay, What we are talking about tonight is this. Who are you and I pushing out of our lives totally and Why? Who is it that we're communicating with our actions and with our words? You're not acceptable. You're not valuable. And you're not worthy. Who is that? So here's my question. What would be the equivalent of the dollar box this week? What would be that type of response this week? A small step, a baby step in the right direction. Carving out just a little bit of margin for people we've marginalized. What would that actually look like? Maybe I need to go scoop some poop. Right? See, and there's more than that in my life. i got a whole list. And honestly, I like the little walls I've built because they keep people where I want them to stay and I prefer them to be there. So who is that for you? I mean, if someone took a poll of people who know you, who is it that would respond by saying, well, I'm pretty sure she hates me. I'm pretty sure that he thinks he's better than me. Or I'm pretty sure that they don't want anything to do with me. Who would that be that would respond that way? And what would a small step in their direction look like? That's the challenge this week. Now, here's my last argument against it. (laughs) You can tell I've been wrestling this week, right? Why? Why? So why would I want to do this? Why would I want to go through that kind of hard work and emotional just challenge? See, I think it goes back to the same reason we would rebuild a trailer, send money to Haiti, throw a big party, or put a roof on the house. So that, and there's always a so that around here and in the Bible, so that when and if someone asks why, why are you doing this, we can say, remember this, this is like that. 
This trailer, this party, this roof, this money is like that heart of God that we worship. This is what he is like. So when you speak to that person for the first time in a long time and they say, why? It's because this, me talking to you, is like that, the heart of the God that I worship. So when you write a letter, you can say, this isn't about me, it's about the God that I worship. Or when you drop off those cookies or actually answer the phone when they call for the first time in a long time, or walk towards their cubicle instead of around it, that's actually a parable or a demonstration of what Jesus has done for you and me. See, here's the hard part, the hard truth I've been wrestling with all week. What Jesus has done for me is bigger than my own feelings about people, my opinion of them, my secret thoughts about them, my complaints about them, however legitimate or illegitimate they might be. Somehow, communicating with my life what the heart of God is all about is the most important thing in the universe. But to be really honest... For me to do that important thing will take an act of God. He's going to have to literally do something in me and in you from the inside out. So I think we're all going to have to beg and plead and ask God for not only the the heart and motivation to do this, but the actual strength and actual words and actions to demonstrate. And the truth is, if we're really honest, a lot of us won't even pray that prayer. Why? Because that's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Because what if God actually does it? That'd be hard. And that'd be scary. So, simple as it sounds, actually walking towards someone instead of marginalizing them out of my world by avoiding them at every turn, that actually starts to scratch the surface of what God has done for me. And that's what this is all about. God help us, right? So let's ask him. God, (laughs) needs your help. God, we really do believe, um, a lot of us in here, that you are um, the most significant person in the universe. That you're most important. And that pointing to you is the best thing that we could ever do for ourselves and anyone else. Um, But God, to, to do that, to demonstrate who you are to people that, if we're really honest, we just don't like, that's really, really hard. Got a lot of us, we've, we've got a lot of people in our life that we've pushed to the margins because we're trying to keep a very um, simple, neat, and convenient life because we don't want to mess. Um, sometimes because of our own pride and because we look down on other people. God, there's a million reasons why we push people that you love to the margins of our life, even though you love us. And that just doesn't make sense. But God, we're, we're messed up, we're really weak, we're really fragile, and we do really immature things. I do all the time. So God, would you please, would you give us not only the motivation, but the strength and the words to take a step, just a small step towards those we've pushed aside. God, would you start to change our hearts from the inside out? It's in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.